and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This conversation is about the novel The Tenth Man by Graham Greene, and I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Glad to be here. Glad to have you both here. Before we get started, I want to read a quick summary about The Tenth Man, published by Graham Greene in 1985. This is the story of a French lawyer imprisoned by the Germans near the end of World War II. During his imprisonment, the time comes when he must face the most difficult decision he's ever had to make. He must choose between his life and his family fortune. The choice he makes, and how that choice affects the others in his world, make up the story of The Tenth Man by Graham Greene. Peter, as we start our story, we meet a group of men imprisoned by the Germans, by the Gestapo. And the first two characters that arise are the timekeepers. There's the mayor of the town, and he has a solid gold watch that he keeps on a chain. Right, we're told he's the mayor of Bruges, but we don't even really get his name, so I think we'll just call him the mayor. Works by me. And so, the mayor is the keeper of this watch. When we meet him, he's winding his watch, looking at the time. Then we find that there's another gentleman in the cell block, and his name is Pierre, and he has a wind-up alarm clock. The first two chapters entail these two going back and forth over who's the better keeper of the time. Now, it seems when the novel first starts out that these two are going to be the main players, and perhaps this novel is going to unfold somewhere around a power struggle about who is the dominant force in this prison cell. Then, towards the end of the second chapter, the mayor forgets to wind his watch, and this becomes a scandal for them. Peter, you identify these two men as the timekeepers, and they do seem to keep themselves apart from the others. I think they feel that maybe they're a little better or a little more removed from the rest of the group because they are the keepers of the time? Well, I think so. And I think the fact that these two had timepieces and they kept the time for all the other prisoners and the other prisoners really depended on them, that elevated them in status and it made them sort of the uberales compared to the other prisoners there. Katie, actually, there were two other keepers of the time in this prison cell. Yes, actually, prior to the time we joined this novel... Under rather unfortunate circumstances, there had been two others that had timepieces. I believe it was wristwatches. They were taken out and they were executed in a way that everyone knows what happened to them because the prison guards actually ended up wearing their wristwatches. So not only do our first two characters feel themselves separated from the rest of the prisoners because they have timepieces and because they are timekeepers, but they might even feel themselves a little bit marked for execution because of the fact that they are keeping the time. Well, the mayor does make that point, Frank. and He goes to give the watch to someone else because I think he assumes that he's going to be executed next. Let's continue on introducing some of our other characters. Uh, after these two characters we've talked about, we finally meet who I'm going to call for now the hero of our novel. But, you know, whether he's the hero or not, we'll talk about a little bit later. But tell me a little bit about our main character, Jean-Louis Chaval. He's actually an attorney. The character really is a lot of introspection and him thinking about how he fits in with the group of individuals. So he walks around asking people if they have heard of his hometown. And so it very much centers around the fact that he is an attorney. He's educated. He's a man of property. And so he's trying to make that connection with the other prisoners 
and failing to do so. Right. He never does make that connection with the prisoners because he is of a station, perhaps above most of them. There's also something with the mayor, and he can't understand why the mayor has animosity towards him. Peter, if I remember correctly, while the mayor and Pierre are arguing over whose timepiece keeps the best time, at one point the mayor says, oh, your clock is running slow. And Cheval just sort of pipes up and says, well, yesterday, mayor, you said your clock was running fast. And I think it's at that moment that the mayor takes a disliking to Cheval. Well, it seems to me that that's symptomatic of why no one seems to like Cheval. Because when he tries to approach the other prisoners, as Katie was saying, just to make conversation, his fault is that whatever he says sounds stilted, almost like an interrogation, like he's questioning a witness. He can't help being a lawyer. Uh, Right, exactly. And Katie, I understand you have a great passage to read that sort of describes just how Cheval gets along with the prisoners. Yes, I think this will give people a flavor. Here's the quote. For more than a week, he had tried his best to behave like a natural prisoner. He had even forced his way into the card parties, but he had found the stakes beyond him. He would not have grudges losing money to them, but his resources, the few notes he had brought with him into prison and had been allowed to keep, were beyond the companion's means. And he found the stakes for which they wished to play beyond his own. They would play for such things as a pair of socks, and the loser would thrust his naked feet into his shoes and wait for his revenge. But the lawyer was afraid to lose anything which stamped him as a gentleman, a man of position and property. He gave up playing, although, in fact, he had been successful and won a waistcoat with several buttons missing. Later in the dusk, he gave it back to its owner, and that stamped him forever. In all their eyes, he was no sportsman. They did not condemn him for that. What else could you expect of a lawyer? So basically, he's trying, and they don't abuse him, but they haven't really welcomed him into their group. I'd say that's accurate. All right, Peter, there does come a moment, and depending on whose clock you want to listen to, it's either, I don't know, 10 minutes to midnight, 10 minutes after midnight, but they all hear some shooting. And the next morning, that shooting brings some dire consequences. The next morning, a young Gestapo officer. A very young Gestapo officer. Well, yeah, right. uh, Who's described by the author as quite unsure of himself, comes in with a prepared speech about how there were murders by partisans in the town that night, and that retribution must be exacted for that. Three people were killed in town. They're going to execute three of the prisoners in return. And Katie, how does the Gestapo officer decide to pick the three men that are going to be executed? He actually doesn't pick them. He leaves it to the prisoners to choose amongst themselves, which then leads to the whole quandary, how do you go about choosing who dies? And what do they eventually come up with as their plan? They're going to have a drawing. And that's where our title comes from, right? The Tenth Man. Well, if they have 30 fellows in the prison and three are going to be executed, then your chance of losing the draw would be one in ten. Hence, theoretically, every tenth man in that group is going to die. Right. I think the Romans used to call that a decimation. But before they decide how they're going to choose which men to die, they discuss who should be eligible. Right. So the mayor folds back into the story, as does Pierre, because he suggested only single men should draw. Presumably because married people have families to go back to after the war and to take care of. So they should not be eligible. But Pierre interjects. Of course, you're married, assuming that the mayor is doing this for a self-serving purpose. But Katie, the mayor is not the married one. Actually, Pierre is the married man. And Peter, once they decide that all 30 prisoners are going to be eligible, 
How do they proceed from there? Well, they draw strips of paper. Uh, there's an elderly gentleman among the prisoners whose name is Lenotra. Uh, he's a clerk by trade, so he takes out a pencil and a piece of paper. And I believe it was a letter from his wife and his kids. It was. Uh, and he reads it one last time, and then he strips it into 30 narrow pieces. Then he puts X marks on three of the papers, folds them all up, puts them in the shoe. When they start to pick, the first man that picks immediately draws an X, and he was out, which casts a really a different tone on the whole picking process, because the author points out that there's really no ability now for any of the prisoners to show relief that they don't pick an X mark, because you don't want to laugh at the man that's already condemned, and he's fairly morose about his situation. So the next one to pick an X is Lenotra the clerk. And he's fairly philosophical about the whole experience, goes to sit beside the first man who had picked an X. And Katie, while this is all going on, as readers, we're in the mind of our main character, Jean-Louis Chaval, and he's doing the math. Exactly. As people pick an X, then he's ashamed, but still somewhat elated that it's not him. But then he finally makes his pick, and sure enough, he's one of the three men that are going to be executed. And interestingly enough, he makes his pick and then... He's afraid he picked the wrong one. He put the piece of paper back. Someone actually accused him of cheating, and it came out that, no, he couldn't have been cheating because the second paper that had picked actually is the one that had an X on it. Oops. And now he's called over to sit with the other two condemned men, and they begin to commiserate with each other. Now, I don't know if you'd say that they commiserate so much. The first two are sort of resigned to their fate. Lenotra pats the ground next to him and says, hey, come and sit with us. But Cheval starts to use his wits as to how he could possibly extricate himself. So now you said he uses his wits. I'm going to say he turns to his lawyer skills and begins the negotiation. Yeah, that would be a fair assessment. And what are the negotiations he starts? Well, he has 300 francs in his pocket that the Germans let him retain when he went into the prison. So he offers the 300 francs to anyone who's willing to take his place. But he gets no takers. And in his mind, he's telling himself, you know, you're selling yourself down the river. You're chickening out, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. So go all in, you know, to quote a Texas Hold'em analogy. So he says, all right, everything I have, my house in Brannock and all my properties, my stocks, every red cent I have to anyone who will take this offer. So he's given up quite an inheritance. Sure. He's thinking about the shame of what he's done. He actually thinks about the fact that he had made very little of himself, and most of his worth he's willing to get rid of is his family's. So, Peter, to use your term, once Cheval goes all in, he actually gets a taker. Yes, yes, he does. And this introduces a new character to us, Jean Vier. Jean Vier is a young man of modest means. He has a mother and a sister. He had left school, and I believe he may have worked uh, for the railroad because Cheval asked him if he's ever been on the railroad towards his neck of the woods where his estate is. Yeah. And the young man says no, but he jumps to the floor, and we learn that he sees a chance here to make himself a rich man and, frankly, die a rich man, even if his own good fortune is going to be fairly short-lived. Katie, were you surprised to have someone come up and take this offer? It's rather surprising, but the character they had picked is coughing and probably was not in good health and was thinking of his family. And, you know, 
I may not be around very much longer anyway, so how do I do something to help my mother and my sister? And so, being the only lawyer in the prison, Chaval has to draw up the legal papers giving away his entire fortune, this inheritance, to Jean Vierre, and he does a good legal job. Interestingly enough, Jean Vierre, though portrayed as maybe not the most educated of the group, is wily enough that he demands a deed of gift. In other words, surrender in writing of the property. But when his time is drawing near, he also demands that Cheval write him a will for himself, leaving the property from him to his mother and sister, because he knows enough to suspect that this may become undone after his death somehow, unless there is some other conveyance from him now to his heirs. And Katie, this changes how the other prisoners view Cheval. Correct. The point that I found most interesting about the book is that the group gave deference to Cheval to begin with, even when he was behaving, by all standards, badly, trying to extricate himself from an execution. But they gave him preferential treatment because he had property. He was educated. And at the point where he signs his name on the piece of paper, the group then considers him one of them because he no longer has property and judges him according to their own standards. Let me just read how Graham Greene describes the change that comes over the prisoners. Quote, He was one of them now, a man without money or position. And unconsciously, they had accepted him and begun to judge him by their own standards and to condemn him, end quote. Now, Peter, word led to these executions. But the next thing we know, Jean-Louis is out of prison. When we start the second part of the novel, a man named Jean-Louis Charlot is approaching a house. He's looking at the house that was earlier described. And melancholy is the predominant emotion here. But Katie, as a reader, we know that this is our main character, Jean-Louis Chaval come to see his old home and having changed his name. Right, correct. Does he tell us where he's been or how he got to this house? No. The second part of the novel immediately follows his time in prison, and so there's a leap from the prison to this point. All right, now Jean-Louis Cheval, or Jean-Louis Charlot, as he's calling himself now, has reached his ancestral home. We meet a couple more characters, the sister and the mother of Javier, the young man who took Cheval's place to be executed. After his death, his mother and sister, they're now living in Cheval's house. Mangiot is their last name, and they are from a lower station in life than Cheval is. They're not used to living in the landed aristocracy surroundings, and hence they have no servants. They really don't have any skill in taking care of the property. They live in the little corners of the house that suit them, the kitchen and a bedroom. They don't tend the garden other than to grow just enough crops in a corner. They may have Cheval's money, but they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to spend it. Well, some of it is that. And also, they never went into the dining room because the sister felt that Cheval's presence was there. And there was such hatred for him that she really didn't want to be in a room where there was so much of his presence. The sister knows that her brother accepted someone else's death sentence in order to leave an inheritance to his sister and his mother. But the mother does not know that her son has been killed. Right. The hatred for him is consuming her, and Cheval comes to realize that he not only sentenced one person to death, but his sister as well. And Peter, we're getting this story being told to us by Cheval. He also has one other story to tell us. Yes, yes. So we segue back to just after he's been released from the prison. Cheval finds himself in Paris, destitute and wandering the streets. He can't find work. Here he is, an educated man. 
So he's walking down the street, and I believe he's going towards the Seine and contemplating throwing himself into the river. He may as well die. But first he stops at a public restroom, and a man comes in, Monsieur Carreau, who starts to address Cheval as Pedo and ask him if he would carry a message to his wife that they're after him. A they, we presume, would be the resistance. You get the vibe that he's a collaborator with the Germans who's on the run. But Cheval doesn't necessarily make that connection right away. Not right away. But the fellow says, I'll give you 300 francs if you take that message to my wife. Well, Cheval takes that money. And that's what allows him to get to his old homestead. Well, with a stop off at an old watering hole on the way, he figures if he's only got a little bit of money and maybe a short time to live, he might as well enjoy it and go down like a Frenchman. Correct. Okay, let's take a break here, and when we come back, I want to talk about how our story gets resolved. You're listening to Novel Conversations. Today, we're having a conversation about The Tenth Man by Graham Greene. I'm Frank Lavallo. We'll be right back. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Okay, we're back, and you're listening to Novel Conversations. When we left, we had Cheval coming up to the door of his old homestead. His plan was really to come up and see his old house, then move on. But he finds he just can't leave that house. So he goes up to the door and he rings the bell, and Jean Vier's sister Therese answers the door. And who wants to take us on from here? Peter? Cheval is coming up to the door of his old homestead. His plan was really to come up, see his old house, and then move on. But he finds he just can't leave the house. So, indeed, he goes up to the door and rings the bell. Janvier's sister, Therese, answers the door. Well, Therese assumes that he's a beggar. Since this is after the war, men have been coming back from the army or being released from prisons. Correct. So she invites him in, and they have a conversation, and they seem to be getting along. Then she suggests that he stays and helps around the house, and they could pay him. And as odd as it seems, he can't seem to leave the house. So he does wind up staying and as a handyman. And Peter, shortly after he starts working around the house, he reveals to Teresa that he was in prison with her brother. So he knew this Cheval man that deeded the property over to her. She, of course, is very curious about that. She asked, what's he like? You know that she wants something that's going to justify her intense hatred. But we remember Charlot is Cheval. So he indicates that Cheval tried to take the deal back and her brother wouldn't hear of it, you know, trying to lessen the blow, I guess, of him living off her brother's death and that Cheval really wasn't a bad fellow after all. Then she wants a physical description of him that's sort of an evil, hawkish, devil-looking man. But Charlot says, well, he really wasn't that much different than me, Uh, maybe a little taller, an inch or so, uh, maybe less— So he's trying to paint a human picture of Cheval for her. But as you said, Therese is really trying to justify her anger, so she doesn't want a pretty picture. Right. As a matter of fact, 
He asked her at one point, Well, what would you do if Cheval came back? And she says, I'm going to take a gun and shoot him. And Katie, after some time passes and our Cheval, now going by the name of Charlot, is working in the house, sure enough, there's a knock on the door and a man introduces himself as Cheval. Yes. Interestingly enough, it's the gentleman that Cheval had met up with in the public restroom, the collaborator. And we come to learn that he had heard of the story of what had happened in the prison, and he determined that he was going to take advantage of the situation. So he came impersonating Cheval. And the real Cheval can't identify this man because then that would identify himself. True. And I think that there is more to it than that, because at this point in the story, I do believe that he was taking a liking to her. You mean Cheval to Therese. Correct. And by agreeing with the imposter that he was Cheval, he realized some of that hatred he could remove from himself if she were to eventually reciprocate in terms of the feelings. So that's right. He had an opportunity here to lose himself and really become Charlot. If only she would believe that this visitor was Cheval. So when she says, is this Jean-Louis Cheval? He says, (laughs) yes, it is. It also wasn't just solely to make himself feel better. I believe he realized that Therese was so consumed with hatred that if she could actually meet the person, it would relieve some of that burden for her. And part of getting past the hatred, I think, is the fact that she had said that if she ever saw Cheval, she would shoot him. Well, he makes his appearance, and he's there a very brief time initially, and then he leaves, and she becomes very emotional, indicating... I couldn't do it. I failed my test of shooting him when I had the opportunity. I'm no better than Cheval. So now the wall of hatred is starting to be eroded. All of a sudden, now Therese understands that when you're tested, like Cheval was in the prison, you'd like to think you would always do what you say or what you aspire to do, but that it doesn't always happen that way. Right, the choices he made become a little bit more understandable to Therese. Exactly. But now the real Cheval does not carry this charade on very long. He realizes he can't keep the truth from Therese. Well, her mother falls ill. And that's a turning point in his decision on how he's going to play this out. She asks him to go fetch the priest. And there's a passage in there about God coming into the house. And when God comes into the house, evil is his constant companion. I believe that's a reference to Carros being there. And when Cheval is walking the priest home after the mother eventually dies, the priest tells him, you have to leave. Right, now that Therese is an unattended, unmarried woman. Right, and it's not just appearances. The priest says that very often there's a component of sorrow in lust, but what people frequently fail to realize is there's also a component of lust in sorrow. And I think... That's going to come into play when Carus has a chance to be alone with Therese. Because, Katie, this is really the moment when Cheval realizes he can't carry this on any longer. Carus has come back, and now he has a plan B. Instead of just taking some of the money and leaving, he's decided he's going to marry into this family and get it all. And that's where Cheval is turning from the evil that he's done. He's basically saying this person, Therese, who's already been deeply hurt by what I've done, is about to be hurt even more so. But I have the opportunity to do the right thing. And so I'm going to. And to do that, I need to reveal who I truly am and deal with the consequences. 
And Peter, how does he finally deal with it, and how does our novel end? Well, he comes back to the house from walking the priest back to the cathedral. And as he walks in the front door, Carlos and Teresa are on the banister up above the stairwell. It's a little murky. Well, they're at least in an embrace. Right. And you get the vibe because she says, stop it, leave me alone. That You think that Carlos is trying to force himself on Therese. And at that point, Cheval, now Charlot, decides that he's going to identify himself as Cheval. So he looks her square in the eye and he says, I am Jean-Louis Cheval. Well, Carlos realizes this is going to be my complete undoing. And with a great amount of flair, he launches into a, oh, he's lying, he's mad, it's all an act. But Cheval knows things about the house and can prove who he is. And it's at this point that Carlos knows the jig is up. So what's his next move, Katie? He pulls out a pistol and he fires a shot at Cheval. The first shot misses, but the second shot actually hits him. Then Therese runs to Cheval, and she says, Are you hit? And he says, No, I just caught a ricochet. It will be all right. Go fetch the doctor. As she leaves to fetch the doctor, he starts to write a last will and testament, and he leaves his property to her so that there can be no doubt that she is going to own it in perpetuity. Well, why does Cheval feel he needs to write another will when he's already left her the property once before? Well, Carose had indicated to Cheval that his earlier transfer may have been invalid, and therefore Cheval felt the need to reconvey the property to Therese. Ah, so now, finally, this is the moment where I think Cheval ends our novel as the hero. Until that point, it's questionable whether he's a hero, but I would agree that he does redeem himself at the end of the book. Peter, does he end up a hero at the end of the novel for you? Because now he's given up both his inheritance and his life. I think he does. Uh, There is a point in the novel where you realize that he's falling in love, or certainly become at least very fond of Therese. But when he catches them in their embrace, he says he's not acting out of jealousy or amorous purposes, but out of tenderness. And you see that he's turned. He wants to save her, not because he wants her for himself, not I should have her, not Karos, but rather because Karos is evil and she needs to be saved from evil. Therefore, he's not doing this so that he can get the girl and ride off into the sunset. He's doing this because it's the right thing to do. It's a selfless act that imitates or at least echoes the act done by Therese's brother, Jean Vierre, by agreeing to be executed, and in that way enrich the family. And there's a reference in there when he's dying. How odd it was that it took so long to arrive at the same pass. The passage reads, In the village, a clock began to strike seven. Cheval, with the torch depressed, counted the hour. It was the hour of the cinder track, the blank wall, and the other man's death. It seemed to him that he had taken a lot of trouble to delay a recurring occasion. And so that's how our novel ends. I'd like to take a moment here to have a quick discussion about the importance of time and the time shifting that occurs in The Tenth Man. What makes me think it's important to the novel is that Graham Greene spends the first two chapters having this conversation between the mayor and Pierre about who keeps the right time. And the mayor says, well, if this is the time that my watch says, then this must be the right time. And then, of course, there's that strange break where we go straight from the prison to the front door of Cheval's house. Well, in prison, to me, the significance of the time was nobody knew how much time they had left. And presumably, some had more time than others. 
And so I think anyone who had any possession of time while in prison was deemed important. But the significance of time was even more so because no one really knew how much time they had left. Peter, what's your take on the significance of time? And with the watches and the clocks and my time is right, your time is wrong, five minutes before midnight, five minutes after midnight? Well, initially, my view was similar to Katie's in the fact that nobody knew how much time they had. But as the novel unfolded and I saw it was a novel more about possessions and not having possessions and wanting to get possessions, well, I thought of time in this novel as a possession. What made the mayor and Pierre important was because they had a possession, just the same way that Cheval had the house. So I thought time was important because it made them something. It gave them status. I thought the more interesting reference to time was the discussion, whether Jean Vier actually died at midnight or he died at seven in the morning, and why that was so important in the novel. Well, who was it important to? Therese. But Peter, was it important to the novel? Well, maybe not in the big picture of the novel, but in setting the hook of Carros, because Therese woke up the night before Jean Vier died at midnight. She awoke with a pain, and they were twins. So she believed that was the moment that he died. She had actually felt his death. And Cheval rightly and truthfully said, no, he died at seven in the morning. But Carros used that to draw her into his trap because he said, no, no, uh, Cheval is lying. He died at night. And she says, at midnight, I had a pain. And he says, exactly. Uh, Now she believes him because she has this connection to her brother. And that bodes with what her body told her it did. But when Jean Vier was really executed, does it really matter? I don't believe it really mattered. He could have been executed at 7 a.m. He could have been executed at midnight. It didn't matter to Cheval, and ultimately it doesn't affect anything that happens to Therese. You know, let me ask the question in in a different way. Could this story have occurred in a time other than the end of World War II in France? Sure. Could have happened in a gulag in Russia. Could have happened in the Depression in the late 20s, early 30s. Sure. It could have happened in a prison in the Middle East, so time doesn't really matter. For me, what Graham Greene is saying in The Tenth Man, especially during those first two chapters of, we don't know what time it is, my time is right because it's my time, and your time is right to you, but it's not right to me. I think he's saying, this story can happen anytime, anywhere. The time of the story doesn't matter. This story should not be dismissed as a horror of World War II. These stories are real and valid, no matter when they happen. And it's a story of redemption. I believe that the story was really about going from execution to redemption. It's about the evolution of the person and whether the person is a good person or not matters not because in the end, he is redeemed. Well, working backwards from the end of the novel to the front, I think we can say that Cheval was heroic in the end. And then you can see that even good people do bad things or make bad choices at the beginning of the novel. He's the consummate evil. Uh, He's buying his life with filthy lucre. Well, with the death of another. And at the end, he's saving the life of an innocent, the sister, Therese. I think that when we get to the end, we look back and we think, uh, he might have been a bit shallow, maybe not as accomplished as he would have hoped, but really, he wasn't a bad person after all. And he probably wasn't that bad a person even in the beginning. He was human, and he had human foibles. 
which led him to cowardice, which led him to do whatever he could to save his life. Katie, Peter, really good. Great insights. Now let's head into our last segment where I'd like to ask the two of you to share a moment or a scene or a quote that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. Peter, do you have something for us? Well, I thought it was interesting the way that Green painted the Gestapo officer, the one who came in to announce the execution. The very young, inexperienced officer. Yeah, that's right. And there's a passage that reads, I'll quote, It was at three the next afternoon that an officer entered the cell, the first officer they had seen for weeks. And this one was very young, with inexperience even in the shape of his mustache, which he had shaved too much on the left side. (laughs) I know. He was as embarrassed as a schoolboy making his first entry on a stage at a prize giving, and he spoke abruptly so as to give the impression of strength he did not possess. End of quote. And then we break from that passage, and there are others from him where he speaks in a staccato speech, and he tries to sound very angry, and at the very end of his speech he says, and I quote again, Your allotment then is three. We are quite indifferent as to which three. You can choose for yourselves. The funeral rites will begin at seven tomorrow morning. End of quote. I thought that was interesting. You know, to juxtapose the funeral rites, which is a Christian religion concept, with a Nazi. I thought perhaps the purpose was for Green to show that at this point in the war— And as we know from history, the Germans were conscripting boys, Hitler youth, who really were just teenagers and forcing them to do men's work. And I thought that was a slip of the tongue that maybe belied his humanity, even though he was a Gestapo agent. Peter, I've got to tell you, I loved that little detail about the misshaved mustache and how he got just a little bit wrong on the left. I think that was Graham Greene showing us again this soldier's youth and inexperience. Exactly. Katie, do you have something you want to share with us? Yes. I found a passage, literally it's the last sentences of the novel that were particularly impactful. The scene is where Cheval is shot and he's lying in his home. It reads, It is oddly satisfactory to die in his own home alone. It was as if one possessed at death only what the eye took in. Poor Jean Vier, he thought, the cinder track. He began to sign his name, but before he had quite finished... He felt the water of his wound flowing immeasurably, a river, a torrent, a tide of peace, end quote. And this really, for me, just sums up the whole book. I mean, we've talked a lot about possessions and people giving deference to people who are more educated than them, but you spent the whole book hoping that Cheval did the right thing and redeemed himself because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how you've come into the world. You come in alone, you die alone. What kind of person you are while you were on the earth is what's important. And I think that that's what is summed up in this particular passage by doing the right thing. That's how you get peace. It is certainly an eloquent way to end our novel and our discussion about The Tenth Man by Graham Greene. I do want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. It's quite enjoyable. Yes, thanks very much. Enjoyed. I want to once again thank our readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. 
or go to our website at evergreenpodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations is produced by Julie Fink, and our audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, James McGrath and Laura Mather. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.